I'm a millennial. This should be easy. Um, okay. Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. These, visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker, speaker file, files, forms for odor, ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of the individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Peter. Thank you. Um, I'm Peter, compulsive overeater. reader. Hi, everybody. Um, oh, I've got a lot of time to speak here. Um, so, thank you so much for asking me to come speak. It's been a while since uh, I've been at this meeting, and it's been a while speaking in a meeting with real people as opposed to a screen, so that's always lovely. Some of you have heard my story. I've been around, so I actually have to think, okay, well, what, what can I tell that's different? Um, and welcome. I, uh, you know, um, you're probably thinking, what did I get involved with here? What, uh, okay. You know, um, you know, I walk into this room, you have all these buzzwords, sayings, seems like, you know, uh, I, I found it very odd uh, when I came to my first meeting. And, you know, it, um, both of my parents had gone to meetings. Um, I was a fat kid. Um, when I was a year old, I weighed 30 pounds, and it just went up from there. And um, um, I just had a big you know, appetite. And, um, you know, it, I was always focused on food. And, um, and everything was around food. My friends were picked based upon, if I go over their house, who has the best food? Oh, this guy's mother was at home baking, all that, that, that's whose house I was going to be over. Um, and, you know, my parents were divorced when I was very young. It was very traumatic. My mother had to go work, and so there wasn't a lot of stuff at home. I was at home and alone a lot of the time from a very young age, and that allowed me to sort of go and binge and eat, and in one sense, I missed having someone like my mother around to bake all the, the stuff that, you know, um, usually gets baked for after school, um, but at the same time, there was no one there to regulate my eating, and so it was this sort of duality that I had in life where I didn't want to be alone, but yeah, I had the freedom because no one was over, you know, watching over me, telling me, you know, you got to stop having that. And so um, at a young age, it just took off. I was always, you know, being told every time I went to the doctor, lose weight, you got to lose 10 pounds or whatever the case is. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, child of the 60s. So the term they used back then was husky. I was a husky kid. You don't hear, you don't hear the word husky anymore. Um, and so it was, yeah, I just got that label. So when you get that label as a kid, as I grew up and I started playing sports as a teenager, and maybe I wasn't husky or chubby or fat, but that's what I heard my whole life, so that's what I thought. And as I go back and look at pictures today, as when I was a kid, by today's standards, I am not fat. But by 1960s, early 1970s standards, I was considered fat. 
So it's kind of interesting how things have changed. But I walk around, oh, I'm fat. Um, and so it just, you know, food was just there. I started exercising, playing sports. So weight sort of began to get a little normal as I was a teenager. Went away to college, you know, and just there was no one there to oversee what I was doing. And you go to the dining hall and I just gained so much weight. And then afterwards, go out drinking, order pizza. Can you say stuff here okay and eat some more and literally in the first couple weeks the clothes stopped fitting and I didn't know what I was going to do and uh when I came home uh for winter break I remember I none of my I had one pair of jeans that fit and I felt so miserable I tried to not eat for five days just to lose a little bit of weight and little my stomach hurt and I remember uh, I was at dinner with my father and someone he was dating at the time. And we were at dinner and he said, you know what your problem is? You're a compulsive overeater. You know, I'm a compulsive overeater. You need to go to OA. Uh, what's OA? Overeaters Anonymous. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Uh, I, I, I'm like, what is he talking about? He had a problem. I could really identify other people had a problem, but I was just like, mm, no. So I was like, avoid him for the rest of my vacation. And um, so, you know, that was kind of what it was. I went back to school, determined to lose weight. And I actually, as I look back on it now, it was a precursor to program. A uh, bunch of us living in a dorm together, we go get stuff to eat. And I'm like, okay, I got to lose weight. And so they're like, okay. So I go to the dining hall. I go, okay, what can I have? You can have this. Can I have that? Okay. Can I have seconds? No. You know, then we go to the gym. We'd work out, do whatever. And it was almost like having a food sponsor. You know, I turned my will and life around food over to those guys. Can I have this? Yes. Can I have it? No, I didn't fight them. And I started losing an incredible amount of weight. I think I dropped around 30 pounds. And it was unbelievable. You know, the only problem was school was ending. You know, I was going to go back. It was summertime. I didn't have these people saying, hey, you can have that. You can't have that. And, you know, at the time I met someone, we started dating. She had just lost a ton of weight. It was kind of interesting. These compulsive overeaters, you know, we just find each other. Um, and so um, I went back home. She stayed down at school, which wasn't too far away. And I went to see her you know, maybe about four weeks after school had ended. And she put on all of this weight. I put on weight, but she put on all this weight. And I was like, oh, my God. And so she came up to visit me for the 4th of July weekend. And uh, my father had been hammering me about meetings again. And I said, well, you know what? I got someone who needs to go to a meeting, my girlfriend. <laughs> Not me. So I took her to a meeting. It was July 4th, 1983 was my first meeting that I went to. And it was a disaster. It was a horrible, horrible meeting. And I, we were both, girlfriend and I were like, okay, this is not, I don't know what we were expecting. I wasn't expecting this. And I was like, okay, whatever. So it was a crazy weekend. And she went back down to school. I sort of went back, you know, I had like a summer job. And for some reason, I went back to another meeting. I don't know why. 
and I went back to that meeting, and they were talking, and the speaker was talking about feelings and why they ate, the anxiety, the resentment, eating at somebody. I I I, I was stunned. They were speaking. They had a vocabulary that gave voice to what I was feeling, but I couldn't express it. I didn't have the words or the facility to express what I was feeling, and they were telling, and they were talking about that just freely, and that stunned me. And right then, that's when I said, "Okay, this whatever this is, this has an answer, the answer." And since then, um, with the exception of about a six-year period from about. 1999 to 2005, I've gone to meetings on a weekly basis, you know, for almost 40 years. Um, and, you know, I was 18. They were all middle-aged housewives at this meeting. Um, I'm 57, so I'm probably older than all of, they, all, all of them were back in 1983. But, you know, when you're 18, anyone over 22 is, you know, middle-aged. And, um, you know, I was like one of the few men I was the only young, straight guy uh, at the meeting. So, and it took me literally years till I met someone like me. So if you're in the meetings and you think, oh, there's nobody like me, I can't relate, they're all this, they're all that. I literally went to meetings in three different countries for about five or six years till I met someone like me. Now, I had lost all that weight during the summer, so I came in at normal weight, but I also knew I was going to gain it back. And I was scared to death to eat anything. And I became sort of anorexic. So I'm probably 195 right now. I haven't gotten on the scale in a while. When you hit your 50s, the number doesn't change, but your body does, and nothing fits. And my sponsor would be like, the scale isn't going to help you. He's not kidding. So there's no reason, reason I get on the scale these days. But I'm about 195. When I came to OA, I was 145. And as I was losing weight during that first semester, the idea was, if I just got down to 160, my life will be better. My grades will improve. My social life will improve. Everything will be great. Got down to 160. Obviously, that's not the number because nothing changed. So maybe it's 150. So I got down to 150, waiting for my social life, you know, uh, my academic life, everything to change. Nothing changed. I go... Obviously, that's not the number, and I went down to 145, and literally at that point, I couldn't get any thinner. You know, I, I was, had a cold all the time. Uh, I had, it just was not healthy, because I thought my problem in my life was that I was fat. <laughs> that's, that's why. That's why everything happened to me. That's why I didn't feel comfortable. That's why people reacted to me, to me the way they did. It's why I got C's instead of A's. Whatever it is, it was because I was fat. And if I just got rid of that, everything would be fine. It wasn't. So um, I started going to OA and um, 40 years ago. So why am I here? Why am I still here? You know, did it not work and I'm still trying to make it work? Um, is it one of these things where, um, you know, I think what's interesting is if you there's a, the nice thing about being in Los Angeles is that there's a lot of people with a lot of time in abstinence in OA and it's fascinating to talk to the people who've been here for 40 years who came in when they were young 
And what happens, there's a lot of people came in when they're 18, 19 years old that are still here today and they're in their late 50s, early 60s. And what I notice about all of them is that regardless of where they are in their program, they have an optimism about life. Mm. Um, they have an outlook that um, things will always get better. There's always an opportunity to improve. Um, that I'm okay just where I am now. There's just some certain tenets, and you get this sense in talking with them about this. And, um, you know, I, I definitely felt that it's rubbed off on me. Whatever I think about my success in OA, um, something has rubbed off, and that's why I'm here uh, still after 40 years. So I got finished school real quick. Uh, I moved to France. Uh, moved to Paris, um, and uh, I don't speak French, um, <laughs> but it sounded like a good idea, you know. And the problem was I couldn't get abstinent when I was in college. Uh, you know, this is when gray sheet, if you've heard about gray sheet, it was a specific diet plan, and that was it, and you had to get 21 days of abstinence. That was a big deal back then. And I had this sponsor who is also an AA, and she's like, you know, I can only teach you what I did, and so you can't drink. And I go, um, this is OA, not AA. Uh, you took the food away from me. I'm in college. I'm in college in the South. You're not going to take the booze away from me. Come on. Uh, I'm not a monk. So I just didn't tell her about my drinking. You know, food plan, not food and drink plan, you know, so I, what did you eat today? I tell her, I didn't tell her about the four pitchers of beer, you know, and somehow I just couldn't get abstinent, I kept binging, I, I, I wasn't honest, and it was only when I decided I had to get sober, you know, I had this idea, okay, if I ever drink and binge, then I'll stop drinking, well, I did that a couple of times, and I'm like, and so finally, it just became very clear. I was having some very big physical and emotional and mental problems, and I had to stop. And the doctors were like, you will develop a condition. If you ever drink or do drugs, you're going to develop a very um, unenviable um, condition. So you can never do this again. And, I'm, and I, of course, I'm like, well, what's the condition? You know, I <laughs> like death. I was like, oh, okay. All right. Okay. That, and I'm glad they said that. I mean, that was the incentive I needed. And so when I got, you know, death, okay, I'll stop. You know, and when I put down the alcohol and got honest with people in the program, suddenly I could get abstinent. And so I literally got on a plane, went to Europe, got abstinent, spent two years in Paris. Paris is the easiest place in the world to get abstinent, by the way. And it is the easiest place in the world to keep abstinence. Because if I want chocolate, I have to go into the chocolate shop. If I go into the butcher shop, I'm not going to find chocolate. I'm not going to find bread. So it was very easy. Don't walk into the bread shop. Don't walk into the, uh, you know, the chocolate shop. You know? Go to the produce stand. Go to the butcher. You know, it was very easy for me to stay abstinent. And plus, you know, in terms of portion, everything was metric. I'm like, how much should I get? And they're like, well, you know, get you know, 200 grams of this. That I had no idea what it was. So it was very easy just to follow what people, again, listening to people in the program, sort of guiding me that way. And, um, you know, came back, got on with my life. 
Uh, and, you know, it's... I'm very much at a crossroads today in my life, and it's fascinating. I feel like I'm starting an incredible new phase of my life and, um, and in my program. And I'm so grateful for that because I see a lot of people, and, I, and I've had this tendency, too, of drifting away. You know, I came back, stayed abstinent. Um, I didn't have a sponsor for a very long time. I kept, you know, I came back, I lived in Washington, D.C., went to Philly, lived in Philly, came to L.A., couldn't quite find a sponsor. You know, if you're in L.A. and you can't find a sponsor, you, you don't want a sponsor. I mean, this is, you can get somebody with time here. And so I, you know, I slowly drifted away. I started to put on weight. I didn't have someone to talk to about it. And I began to think the program doesn't work. And so I sort of drifted away from the program, although people in program sort of, they were in my life. They were around. They didn't go away. They didn't say, well, are you going to come back to a meetings? Are you going to, you know, are you going to get abstinent? No, they're just like, hey, we're here. You know, how are you doing? What's going on? So thank God for those people. And, um, and it was always sort of just a little sign whenever I'd see them. Uh, and, and it just reminded me, oh, yeah, oh, way. And so I remember I had a health scare, and um, I knew I had to come back to meetings. I knew it, and um, I put on a ton of weight during that time. I left OA. I got married in 1995. By 1997, I was about 70 pounds heavier. Um, I had been doing some sugar-free stuff, and this nutritionist said, well, you know, the stuff turns into sugar. You might as well have sugar. I, if, if you were going to do that, and, you know, what I didn't hear was maybe you shouldn't have that stuff. I just said, fine, oh, I'll have sugar, and <laughs> off to the races. So uh, 70 pounds later, um, you know, I was really in not a great place. So one of the things that... Um, you know, it's fascinating to listen to people in the program today. You know, they'll ask questions. We'll do the questions, and they go, you know, how are your relationships today now that you're abstinent and in OA? How have they improved? And, you know, people talk about it, and they have improved. I think for me, I've ha I had to flip that over, and I've been looking at a lot of things. And one of the things was, how do my relationships affect my program? I mean, you know, I got into a marriage that there were some issues, and I ate over those issues, and I didn't have anyone to talk to about those issues. And when you put on 70 pounds, you know, after getting married all of a sudden, yeah, maybe there's something there. But I had, uh, I had sort of isolated myself. And so sometimes, it, you know, I, I have to flip that question around and say, how have my relationships affected my eating? How have my relationships affected my program? Have, have they been a positive influence? Well, the answer was no. Um, and so I didn't realize that for a very, very, very long time. Um, you know, I, I got into my son's candy. He was like, he was born in 2000, so he was like three or four. I just like, we went trick-or-treating. I ate all his candy. He's like four. He's not going to, what's he going to know, you know? Um, and I felt terrible. I felt terrible. And I vowed I would not do it again. And uh, my sponsor in AA, I know this is OA, but he was actually, I met him in OA. 
uh, Scott R. He's since passed away many years ago, and um, um, and he had dropped out of OA. And one day he said to me, I remember it's like September 2005. He goes, I recommitted to my abstinence. I've gone back to OA, and I was like, really? Wow. Because we used to complain about how the program didn't work. AA <laughs> uh, A works. OA doesn't work. And I was like, huh. Well, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. And so I came back, and I'm like, and I vowed I'm not going to get into my kid's candy this, this Halloween. One, he's older, he'll know. Uh, but two, I just, I wasn't going to do that. And so I came back around... Um, Halloween weekend. I got through Halloween okay, and that Saturday I went to the kitchen sink, which is where I went to. Um, I saw a guy there. He moved to L.A. I didn't know. I sponsored him 15 years prior in Philadelphia. And I was like, okay, that's my sign that I'm supposed to be here. And got a sponsor right then at that meeting, and because I didn't have one for a very long time. And I've been abstinent since, you know, October, you know, I, I say Halloween weekend, 2005. And, um, you know, it's um, what keeps me here today is that um, I look at compulsive overeating and all these addictions. It's like a gas stove. When the burners are on, I'm in my addiction. I'm in the food. I'm in the alcohol. I'm in the spending. I'm in the inappropriate behavior. Those burners are going full. Turn those burners off. I got recovery. The pilot light of addiction is still on. It's always on. Always can get reignited. I don't know when it's going to get reignited, but it can get reignited at any moment. So I have to remember that that pilot light of addiction is there. And that's what keeps me coming back. Also, at the same time, uh, the other stuff that helps me is that I learned from an early age, work the program, do the steps, you'll see recovery, you'll see progress, work with others, trying to expand life, trying to work on spiritual growth. And, you know, I began to say big, see big changes in my life. And, you know, and, and they weren't, they were very incremental. My recovery has been incremental. Growth in my life has been really incremental. My career was really incremental. And, but what I saw was incremental change. And that has helped me tremendously. And so what I find is if I stop and I stop working the program, I stop growing, I get stale. And I have to look for something. And I remember a lot of times doing all these inventories, writing these inventories, Usually about my wife, you know. I'm resentful at my wife. It, you know, why? Uh, you know, I, she didn't, she spent too much money, you know. What it, you know, what does it affect? It affects my, you know, self-esteem, uh, sexual relations, ambition, pocketbook. Um, and um, what would be the, you know, if, what are the character defects that if they were removed, I would no longer have that resentment? That's the inventory, a nice little thing there. And I'd say, you know, uh, I'm not trusting in God. Um, you know, I'm, you know, blaming her. Uh, I'm not taking a look at how I spend my money. So maybe I'm a little bit, a little bit of a hypocrite. 
And so then I pray and, you know, um, share it with somebody else in the program, usually a sponsor, ask to have these character defects removed. And then I had to act as if those defects were removed and go on with my life. And, and, and that is kind of how I did things. And I constantly came back. And my pattern in life is to do these inventories until I discover, oh, I've gotten rid of the anger here. I've gotten rid of the resentment. I haven't gotten rid of the problem. I need to make a change. You know, whether it's changing a business partnership, a marriage partnership, uh, my relationship with my parents, I need to make a change here. And I need to change fundamentally how I'm interacting with these folks. Uh, because I just, you know, I'd be like, okay, I got really upset. Okay, I'm just going to turn it over and I'm going to be in acceptance. And I'm just going to accept that this is the way she is. And she's a, you know, wonderful child of God who's spiritually sick like myself. And I'm just going to turn it over and I'm going to be okay. And I'm just going to be in acceptance. Because, you know, when we get disturbed, the problem is with me. You know, it's never that there's someone else's behavior. And I never took it that far. And so I was always trying to spiritualize myself out of the problem. I wasn't working the steps. I thought I was working the steps, but I wasn't working the steps. I was trying to spiritualize my way out of the problem and just think, well, maybe I can float above this and it won't bug me anymore. The reality of it was it was bugging me. And so, you know, the last year and three or four months, you know, I finally decided, okay, after 27 years of marriage, being together 31 years, this is not working. And, you know, it's funny, I went to talk to my sponsor, and this is also where the program comes in. He's been my sponsor since 2005. I'd known him since I moved here in 1992. And I said, look, I can't do this. I, 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 I think I need to ask for a divorce. I, you know, and I know she's going to say, let's go to therapy, let's go do this, let's go do that. And he goes, you've done the work. Believe me, he goes, I've listened to it. <laughs> Endlessly. You've done the work. You, if that is how you feel now, that's it. And yeah, we, I had also done seven years of couples therapy. Believe me, there was a lot of other outside work involved there. But to have that relationship in the program where I'd gone to that person and worked on trying to make things better, it was a, such a gift to have them say, no, you've done this. There's nothing more for you to do. Now you have to figure out how to, you know, go through this divorce, make sure that everyone's taken care of, do so in a respectful way, um, and, you know, um, have some integrity here. And because you haven't had integrity, you haven't been honest, you haven't said, I haven't wanted to be here for the last 10 years. Which was true. And, you know, it was very painful conversations, and, you know, now I'm in that process. Um, she did not want the divorce. And so it's a little messy. And that's life. And what I get to do is, um, I get to step up and do what I didn't do in our marriage. I now have to do now. It's a lot more confrontation in a very um, loving manner. And just say, standing up for myself and saying, okay, I understand where you're coming from. This, I can't do this. It's not acceptable. Here's why. Um, and I'm going to go in this direction. And, you know, fortunately, that direction means my lawyer's direction. 
you know. And it's what it has taught me, though, is that I have to resolve all those things I didn't want to deal with in order for the relationship to be done. I have to go through that growth that I couldn't go through. I have to go through it now before there is uh, any type of change. And, you know, one of the things that I began to see was, going back to my childhood, you know, why did I not want to do this? You know, my whole life was really, um, everything came down to my parents' divorce and how it was drawn out and it was very ugly and it was very terrible. That was my defining thing. That's why I ate. That's because, you know, to cover up the pain and all this. So, of course, the last thing I wanted to do was to do this. And yet, that was the thing I had to do. And it's fascinating because, you know, I've been very careful with the food. I'm probably about five pounds heavier since I've been going through this, five to seven pounds heavier. And I say to my sponsor, look, I'm exercising like a fiend. I'm eating what I'm supposed to eat. I've actually began to cut down what I've been eating. And because uh, when you get to your mid-50s and older, you know, um, you can't eat late the way I did when I was 20. Just can't do it. And so I'm doing everything, but it's also that stress and that confrontation of doing, facing something I've not wanted to face. The beauty about OA is, is I can face it. It doesn't have to go well. There can be twists and turns. That's okay. I can still be abstinent. I can still be okay. I can still live with integrity. I can still try and treat everyone fairly. And I don't have to sort of hide stuff from my kids. Um, I'm like, if you want to ask me anything, ask it. You know, I'm not going to tell you because I don't think you really need to be involved with the details, and they don't want to be involved with the details. And one's in college; they're both college age, so you know they 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 know what's going on. But we, my relationship with them has improved tremendously since I've been going to go through this process because there was a part of me that was sort of protecting myself, almost hiding from the pain of not confronting this, that it cut off, I cut off my relationship with my children. And today I'm much more emotionally open with them and we have some amazing interactions. And I am so thankful that I can do this, but I couldn't have done it um, Ten minutes, and then we do um, total. Oh, so if I want to do some questions, okay. Let me. I, I, I always like the questions, um, so I'll wrap this up. But you know, the thing about it is, is that that was an unexpected gift of being in the program and having this relationship with the kids. You know, today um, it's okay to be a little overweight, uh, above where I want to be doesn't mean my program's good or bad. Uh, I'm, I'm, again, talking to my sponsor. If he's cool with things and I try to be very, very honest with him, then, it, then I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And, you know, what has happened is always given me the calmness and the certitude to go through that. And also what it's done is allow me to begin to think about a lot of things that I've not been able to do in the next phase of my life, and it's extremely exciting. Um, my day-to-day life won't change that much, but 
a lot of things that I've not pursued, I can now pursue. And um, whether it, and, and some of it's work related, some of it's creativity. Um, but what seems to be opening up is great because I'm finally willing to. OA has allowed me to begin to confront some very difficult situations that I've been avoiding for a long time. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I wasn't in OA and I wasn't abstinent. That, I have to just say, that is really the essence of why I'm still here after 40 years, um, is for that reason. It is a facilitation uh, that allows me to live my life. And I'm eternally grateful. So, I'm going to stop there and then we'll open it up for questions. Perfect. Show of hands. All right. Nine minutes. Ask your questions quick. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, what step or tool, and I'm sure there's many, many, would you say you've used the most to help you get through the integrity in your divorce? So what step or tool have I used the most to get me through uh, my divorce with integrity? That's a really good question. I would say um, the second step. And the second step came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me, uh, store us to sanity. And what that step talks about is do I have a relationship with a higher power and do I understand what I'm supposed to do, what my higher power is supposed to do, and when do I overstep that and become, make my life unmanageable, and when am I not turning it over? And one of the things that I think is so important is, you'll hear this a lot in meetings, well, I've recommitted to my program, I'm going through the steps again, you know, I've just not been happy with where things have been, and I'm going to just dive back in and, and go through the 12 steps again. And when I used to do that, it was about, um, I don't like where my life is, and i got to take control, and I'm going to show my higher power that I mean business, and we're going to get this right, and then I'm going to get that promotion, and I'm going to get that situation happening, and things like that. In other words, I'm trying to con God. The second step basically says, stop all that nonsense. Start to work on, do I trust that I'm being taken care of? And what do I have to do next? You know? And then the third step that follows that is, you know, basically, I became willing to turn my, the care and will of my life over to a higher power. I don't turn my life over. I turn the, the care of my life over, meaning I'm going to be taken care of and I'm going to be carried. So the second step, I think, has been something that's really been, and it's not a step that we spend a lot of time talking about. So, thank you. Next question. Yes. Uh, thanks for sharing. Um, have, I guess my question is, have you, have you had a very memorable godly or spiritual experience that you could share to kind of inspire, like a moment where you're like, wow, that was from a higher power, like a specific, whether it's like a sign or this feeling, or, you know, I think when we all go through hardship, there's certain moments that like... Yeah. So has there been a moment, I'll repeat the question, has there been a moment where 
or a situation where I've had a spiritual experience that was really that aha moment, just like, oh my gosh, and that really um, sort of set me on a certain course. And, and, and um, yeah, there have been a lot of those moments. And I'm trying to think of... Um, what has happened is that... Um, they're usually involving somebody that shows up in a very random way in my life with a message. Um, that has been, uh, and then what happens is there is a realization. I'll tell you a story. So in 2008, I worked in the financial industry. Everything was imploding. I was running out of money. Um, there was my spouse at the time. I, there were some craziness uh, around some spending and things like that. And I called my sponsor and I go, I'm broke. I have no money in my bank account. I'm broke. I can't make the mortgage payment this month. I have nothing coming in. My income's dropped 65%. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he goes, pray about it. And I go, well, I prayed for this not to happen and it happened. So, uh, <laughs> And he goes, why don't you pray to have the fear of financial insecurity removed? He goes, do you have a retirement account? I go, yeah. Take money out of that. And I go, I can't do that. You know, and he goes, you need money? You've got some. You've just made a decision about what is okay money to get and what you have some money. Turn it over turn over this fear of financial insecurity. And I was like, okay. And so I began to do that. And it was fascinating. Within a week, I stopped having this fear. Nothing changed. Although something would happen. A little money would come in. A little uh, deal would happen. It would trickle in. And he goes, and I would call him up and he goes, are you bankrupt yet? I go, no, this thing <laughs> happened and I got a couple of bucks. He goes, oh, you mean you're being taken care of? I've got a very sarcastic sponsor. And um, I'm like, yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, you know. Um, and what happened was I stopped praying to have that fear removed because it had been removed and I didn't notice. I was like, oh, wait a minute. I haven't thought about, you know, not having any money. I mean, you know, I, what happened? And what I discovered was going bankrupt. And he goes, you may lose your house. You may lose everything. And that's God's will. It's not because you're working a great program you get to hold on to your house. It's God's will. And guess what? You will be okay. That is the message of, you know, basically turning this over. And that was the aha moment. I realized, I got this sense, nothing's going to kill me. I could lose the house. I could lose my job. I could declare bankruptcy. God forbid someone in my family, you know, my children could die. I was going to be okay. That was not going to kill me. Once I understood that, I got a level of peace that was amazing. And I've had that level of peace ever since. There's, you know, it's like, oh, well, if that happens, oh, how could I? And I don't say anymore, I, I couldn't survive that. Because that's a lie that I tell myself. Of course I could. 
it's happening. You know, I had a, a, a sponsor who said, if you want to know God's will, open your eyes. It's happening in front of you. And I'm like, well, this world? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it is. It's not my job to figure out why. It's just to be understand that I'm going to be taken care of. I will be okay. And that was the thing that really, I think, was the big thing for me. One more? 30 seconds. Yes, real quick. You said you say some things to your kids and not everything about the divorce. How do you know what to say, when to stop? What, what helps you with that? Uh, being a child of divorce, uh, nothing negative. Not like, your mother is up. <laughs> so um, if they want to know, they'll ask. And that's what I tell them. So I'm not going to say, oh, this is going on, this is going on, or this is going to happen, or this is not going to happen. Um, if they want to know something, they can ask. And then if they ask, I'll be very general. Because kids don't want to hear their parents talking shit about each other. Regardless of how bad that other spouse may be acting and they know it. And so I, I realized that as a kid. So I think about what is what did I want to hear as a kid and didn't? Or what did I hear that I didn't want to hear? And that's how I act. Thank you.